Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right, we're going to read from John 6. We're going to read, a, I actually shortened the passage significantly, because um, the whole chapter is this chapter on bread. It begins with Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you're familiar with that story, um, the five, it's actually probably upwards of 15,000. It says 5,000 men, and, and commentators think that we can safely assume that there have probably been an additional at least 10,000 women and children there as well. But they've been following Jesus. It's at the end of the day. There's no food. They're away from home. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, and Jesus miraculously provides food with them. He multiplies one little boy's meal into a meal that feeds everyone, so much so that when they're done, they have food left over. And we're actually picking up John uh, chapter 6, verse 15, is actually the very end of that episode. And just the last comments, and then I'm going to start again in verse 22. Uh, so... When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, this is actually verse 14, they said, this is the prophet who's come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and make him be king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. At this point, Jesus crosses um, the sea, and we actually pick up on the next day. He actually avoids everybody. And this is where verse 22 comes in. On the next day... Uh, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and Jesus had not entered the boat. This is the episode where Jesus walks on water. Uh, had, that's what just happened. And that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came to the place where they had been, where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to them, What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise Him up on the last day. He continues this discourse on bread, and I'm just skipping to the end. When many disciples had heard it, they said, This is a hard thing. Who can listen to it? 
And after this, many of his disciples actually turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus, and as we think about um, this story in its ancient context, I pray that you would make it relevant to us today. You, we would see that you have wisdom for us today. And I pray that you would open our hearts to the possibility of what you say. Uh, forgive us for wanting to twist your words. I pray that your truth would touch our hearts. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, when I was in seminary the, 10, 12, 10, 11 years ago, um, one of my professors used this book. Have you all ever heard of the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? This is kind of one of like the preeminent books of the self-help empire. Um, and they kind of co-opted some elements of it. And it's one of those books that has really annoyingly simple advice for life. Um, and you realize when you're reading it, you're like, I think I already knew that, but simply because you said it in a pithy way, I feel like it's new. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like reading Malcolm Gladwell books, where like the point of his book is if you work for 10 years, it's something you can be great at it. And you're like, I think we knew that, but somehow you convinced me this was a new discovery. Um, you know what I'm saying? You'll have that experience. You're like, haven't we known that already? Um, well, so this guy, Stephen Covey, and one of the things he says in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, my, the way I remember specifically my seminary professor said it the first time is TMT, ITK, TMT, TMT. Does anybody know what this is? Not Jess? TMT, ITK, TMT, TMT? Yes. Excellent. Um, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Why did I bring that up? Why did Dr. Chapel talk about it in seminary? I think it's the reason I do this for this reason because when we come to Scripture, we often come to it often unaware of the fact that we're bringing a, this other lens, this kind of script for our life that we already believe in. And what we often try to do is we actually try to co-opt Scripture to fit in my script for my life. And kind of, I'm going to co-opt Christianity or this religion or this idea of faith and fit it into this script for my life that I've already kind of collected and concocted and written out. And so we want to use Christianity or faith or Jesus uh, to accessorize our life with it, um, to get something from it. And the problem is, when you read the Gospels, Jesus comes and messes that up. Because He says, I am the living water. And He says, I am the bread of life. And what He's saying is, I don't help you get something. I'm not an accessory or an assistant. He's saying, I am the thing. Jesus doesn't come along and say, I can help you get what you want. He comes along and says, I am what you want. I am the thing. So Dr. Chapman would say, the main thing is to keep Jesus the main thing. And the question for us is actually when we read the Bible, are we going to be willing to hear Him out, to let Him actually express Himself the way He wants to? 
about who He is and what He's come to do. And when we learn about what He's come to do, I think if we begin to listen well, become self-suspicious of our own plans and our tendency to push our plans into Scripture and try to co-opt it to kind of create our own little life, but when we become actually suspicious of that and we say, what is Jesus just saying and what is He saying He's going to do? I think we're going to get to a place where we say to ourselves, I don't think I ever knew it, but Jesus, you're exactly what I need. I think in some ways that's like the first and in a lot of ways ongoing mature Christian feeling, not just thought, but feeling. I'm not sure I ever knew it, and I even find it hard to believe, but when I encounter the promises and the work of Jesus in Scripture, I think it's been dawning on me that Jesus is what I need. Not a fulfillment of my life script, because that's temporary anyways, but actually Jesus Himself. And so what I want to do is I want to examine the responses of two different people um, in this text when they come and interact with Jesus, and He's saying things like, I don't help you get the bread of life, I am the bread of life. It took place uh, right on the heels of the feeding of 5,000, and people followed Jesus in the Galilee countryside. And after teaching all day, right, no one's brought food, Jesus performs this miracle. And we picked up in verse 15, after Jesus has performed this sign, remember? And he said, it says, perceiving that they were going to come and take him in force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. And Jesus, after the crowds kind of found him the next day, he ran from him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, why is he saying that? Why did he withdraw? And why is he saying, you're not even seeking me for the right reasons? Because they were there and they did in fact actually see the sign, right? See the miracle take place. What he's saying is, but you didn't read the sign. They saw the miracle and Jesus ran away because they wanted to make him king for all the wrong reasons. They didn't come looking because they wanted Jesus. They came looking because of what they thought they could get from Him. They ate the loaves, but they failed to see what Jesus was actually doing in the sign. If you remember what we said in week two, the miracles are called signs, and that's a really important word. It's a vitally important word for understanding the New Testament. Because signs are about teaching something beyond themselves. A sign always points beyond itself, and you have misunderstood the sign, and you haven't seen it, if you stop at the sign and think that's the thing itself. If you stop at the sign that says Disney World Next Exit, you'll be frustrated because that's not Disney World, right? That's where they're stuck. They're stuck at the sign is amazing and they can't see past it. And what reality is, the reality is this, is they actually have a very superficial understanding of their need. Because Jesus uses this sign, like He says, the way God had used it beforehand, providing bread for people. He did it in the Old Testament for the Israelites when they were in the desert, and the manna fell from heaven. And He used it by providing bread for their hungry physical bodies. He used that physical message of meeting a small need in order to teach them about how God spiritually meets our truer and deeper need. What this was, was an acted out sermon illustration, both in the desert in the Old Testament and now. And they fixated on the illustration instead of the lesson it was teaching. And in short, they came to Jesus to get things from Him and not to get Jesus Himself. And Jesus is frustrated because they, like we, are asking so little of Him. 
please meet my current circumstantial needs, my physical hunger in their case, right? My midterm stress in our case. Provide my, fix my social despondency or insecurity. Provide a significant other. And what Jesus is offering them, what Jesus is offering us, is the love of God. The prize of the Christian faith is not that all your wildest dreams come true. The prize is Jesus himself. When you begin to explore what he's saying and the promises of Scripture, you realize he loves you more than you could ever dream. The prize of Christianity exceeds your wildest dreams. Our wildest dreams are just woefully small. When Jesus explains the sign that all this bread I provided for y'all, this man in the desert that you're fathers were provided was a sign to teach you that God provides the true bread that satisfies, that gives life. And they said, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The main thing Jesus offers you is Jesus. The love of God. And if there is anything that could give us life more than winning at Stanford, Right? more than finding a significant other, finding the job, if there's anything that could heal our human condition and give us security and full life, wouldn't it be the love of God? And Jesus is the purest and sweetest expression of that love. And we're going to explain, explore it more all throughout John, that love has all kinds of rich contours to it. It is more than simply affirmation. That's tend to, that actually tends to be the way now we describe love, simply as affirmation, agreeing with someone and affirming their preferences. But actually, up until probably the last 10 years, that was actually what patronizing was. It's simply affirming someone. Real love is rich and it's full. It involves disagreement and involves affirmation. It involves discipline and involves encouragement. It involves joy and worship. It involves all kinds of things. And Jesus is offering, Jesus is the love of God incarnate. He is offering us Himself. And so after explaining it to the Jews, I am the bread of life. He says this, and I think this is terrifying because He's rebuking all of us. And now you've seen me and you don't believe. So I want to ask you this, hearing Jesus in this text now, Examine your heart and consider this question. If God said to you tonight, tomorrow, I'll give you one of two things. I'll give you, I'll guarantee that you get the offer you want from that company. I'll guarantee that you get a 4.0. I'll guarantee that you get a six-pack and you lose the amount of weight you want to lose. And that, that I'll guarantee you that that nasty person will be removed peacefully from your life. And everybody will think you're a wonderful person. You'll have a significant other. I'll give you that. Or I'll give you a sure confidence and experience of my eternal love for you. Which would you take if God made that offer to you tonight? And we know the Sunday school answer, but if you're honest with yourself, which would you take? I can tell you by way of illustration, I've been doing this job for 12 years and I'm learning to be intuitive. I'm not naturally intuitive. Jess can tell you that. Um, But one of the things I've learned over time talking to college students day in, day out, uh, which is what I love, I can tell pretty quickly in a conversation or two, but usually in one conversation, 
the difference between people who have a deep, loving connectedness and assurance that their parents love them, deeply connected and secure in their parents' love, the difference between those people and the people whose parents never really connected with them, but urged them to work really hard and also bought a lot for them. And on the surface, we all envy the person who got lots of stuff, right? Because we think that's cool because stuff is awesome. But underneath, I promise you that the life you want is the life of those who are sure of their parents' love. Because those people have a restedness and a security. It's actually the restedness and security that all of the rest of us are fighting for and working for all the time. We don't even know that what we want is to be loved above all else. Right? Because we envy the lives of the people that have all the stuff. The accomplishment, the stuff, whatever it is for you. We're, we're not even good at knowing that love and not stuff is the answer. Because we are so afraid of that answer. We're still terrified of that answer. Now, on a small analogous level, this is actually why deep friendship is really hard to come by at Stanford. Deep, knowing, loyal, rich friendship. This is a lone, I've worked four different campuses. This is the loneliest campus I've been to. And the reason why is because you don't have time. You don't have time for friendship. Because deep, knowing, loyal friendship, it takes a lot of time to just be together. It takes a lot of sacrifice. That's what time is. It takes curiosity in each other. It takes investment. It takes mutual serving. Y'all don't have time for that. And the reason at Stanford that people are winning in the stuff race and dying on the inside is because connection and love are the things of life. And that's precisely what we don't have time for. Even though we know it, we're actually too afraid to act like we believe it. And that's the difference between knowing and believing. Because we know or we, we, we assent to the idea, but we're unwilling to act on it. So we actually don't, we know, you're like, yeah, connection and love, that's it. I know what you're saying is right, but we don't believe it because we don't act, take, take the actions of connection and love. Instead, what we do is we work, 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 and hope that it will save us. And when Jesus seems to be able to aid us, right, in our task, we don't seek Him, we seek His assistance because He gave us bread in the past. And we never saw what he's trying to teach us. That I gave your body bread as an illustration. That the way bread gives life to the body. I am the bread of life and I give life to your humanity and to your soul and to your heart. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the point. Jesus is saying the way your body needs bread, this is their primary form of sustenance in the first century. That's the way your body needs bread, that's how you need me. The sure knowledge that God loves you that He has forgiven you, that none of your sins separates you from Him. He's made a way. He cares for you. He's with you. He's for you. He knows you. He's sovereign over your circumstances. He's even sovereign over the suffering and using it. He is so good that He will not please you all the time, but, also, but actually do what's good for you, even if that's difficult. That He's tender to you. That He has spoken to you. That He intends to teach you like a good parent. And that He actually also anticipates the day that you will be with Him. If you have Jesus, you have all of that and you have everything. And if you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. 
how, how can we know, right, look at our lives and say, I don't think I'm seeking Jesus. I think I'm just seeking something from Him. There's a lot of different ways. I'll throw out one and then we'll move on. In your life, are you growing in rest or are you growing in anxiety? One of the chief hallmarks of life in Christ is rest. And the more you grow in grace and knowledge of God's love in Jesus, this is what the prophet Isaiah says, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. Actually equates rest with salvation. In quietness and with confidence you will have strength. This is what Isaiah then says, but you would have none of that. Why not? So, so do those of you who identify as being in Jesus, have faith in Christ, here's my question for you. Here's another question. Have you grown in rest or anxiety since you've come to Stanford? Because if you've grown in anxiety, it's because we've not sought Jesus, but we rather we've sought to get Jesus to assist us in our plan. And if your plan keeps getting frustrated... It's probably His love for you. Might be the highest expression of His love for you in college is a D. Right? Getting cut. Right? Isaiah says when we turn our hearts to God, we get rest. Doesn't that sound good? Sounds great, but what are we going to do tomorrow? Be too afraid to take God up on rest. And instead, we're going to go seek in life Seek life in something that produces the exact opposite of what Jesus offers us. He's saying, I love you so that you can have rest for your weary soul. What we're going to do tomorrow is we're going to disconnect ourselves from meaningful rest in relationship with God and we're going to seek anxiety. It's going to hollow us out. We are too afraid to believe. And that's why Jesus' words are scary. You have seen me, right, to the Israelites. And you don't believe. So what are we to do? What are we supposed to do? In some ways, what I hope you feel, because this is where they are and this is where we are, is the impossibility of belief and rest. I know this is all true. Do I believe in it? The sense in which I'm willing to actually act on it, like rest and my soul calm in the sure love of Jesus? And it's appropriate to ask, well, what am I supposed to do if that's where I am? And towards the beginning, when the crowds began to see Jesus, it's dawning on them on some level that Jesus is offering something more than simply bread, but this food that endures to eternal life. In verse 28, they say, well, then what then must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, and this is for all of us. This is for Christian and non-Christian, convinced, unconvinced, skeptical, or sure. What are we supposed to do? What does Jesus answer the question of what are we supposed to do? if we're going to be doing the works of God, if we're going to respond to this offer. Because our instinct is set in place a plan of renewed vigor to act really Christian. Right? That's what I'm supposed to do now. But how do we get life from Jesus? Listen to Jesus' words. This is the work of God that you believe in Him, whom He has sent. Later he says, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me shall never hunger. Who believes in me shall never thirst. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. How do you receive satisfaction? How do you receive rest and an unanxious assurance? Wouldn't you like to be unanxious tomorrow? Wouldn't you like to be unanxious tonight? 
How would you like unanxious assurance that you are known all the way through and loved still? Believe in Jesus. That means you trust in His words. That means you have to know them to trust in His words. That you trust His promises. That means you have to know them. That you trust in what He's done. That means you have to understand what He's done. And so what you begin to do is you begin to make His words speak back to all the lies we're telling ourselves all the time. We're going to walk out of this room and start believing the lies we've been believing all the time, which is panic because if you don't crush it tomorrow, you will not have life. That's a lie. Do you know that? That's our favorite lie, isn't it? But do you know it's a lie? Do you know that believing that lie takes your life from you? And this is also not just, this is truth from Scripture, but like the psychological community today that doesn't believe in God actually agrees with that as well. That they actually recognize the truth of God on this. We need Jesus' words to speak back to those lies. I want to, for a brief moment, to address one misconception we all have that helps us through this process. Um, Because at times, everyone, myself included, gets frustrated and confused by one of the clear teachings of Scripture. And all throughout Scripture, later in John 15, it says, we'll read this later in the quarter, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He says in verse 47 in this passage that whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life and unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, this is verse 53, it's not in your thing, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, eating His flesh is an image of faith, and drink His blood, then you have no life. And these are just a sampling of the, the abundance of verses in Scripture that speak to the fact that life is in Jesus alone. That we are saved by Christ alone. And that doctrine troubles all of us for a myriad of reasons, but I want to help make sense of it a little bit tonight, not fully answer it, there's certainly more to it, because that is the clear teaching of Scripture. What Jesus is offering and what is available through only Jesus is life, eternal life, life everlasting, fullness. There are a lot of different words for it. And we go wrong when we separate His promise of life from Him. And the, way, the reason we have trouble with that, well, so you're only saved through Jesus alone, the reason we have trouble with that is because we perceive it that, that the afterlife is this theme park and Jesus is the guy handing out free tickets out front and you've got to find Him to get to the theme park. And, what, and we're like, I don't like Christianity because it says there's only one guy handing out tickets. But certainly there are other people handing out tickets from other faiths too, right? You're thinking about everything the wrong way. And we're actually not hearing Jesus when we begin to perceive it that way. Right? We think full life is, is a better place and you've got to find the right door, right? in parentheses, religion. Uh, if that's the way we think of it, we still actually haven't heard what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about that at all. Jesus is saying, I am life. The reason there's no eternal life apart from Him is because He is life Himself. He doesn't want to get you to a place. He's not a mechanism to get you somewhere. He wants you And He wants you to enjoy Him. And that's what life is. So there's no life apart from Jesus because as John said in chapter 1, we said the first week, in Him is life and He is the life of men. We have to stop separating the notion of an afterlife as a place and Jesus as the tool for getting there. The biblical idea of salvation is knowing and being loved by God. That's what life is. Hence, apart from coming to explore and believe in Jesus, there is no life. 
And secondly, that means even though our bodies waste away, Paul actually says of his own experience in 2 Corinthians 4, my outer body is still wasting away in this life, but he's saying, but internally I'm renewed day by day. It actually means you begin to live full life now. The Christian sense of salvation is not simply that one day you go somewhere and you're happy and secure. It's actually that that day in the future when we will be with Jesus creeps back into this life now. And you can go to bed tonight with, a, with an inkling of the assurance God loves me that will one day be an overflowing assurance that God's loved me. You know what that is? That is life breaking into this world now and into our hearts now. Life is being in Jesus, forgiven and accepted and treasured and loved by God. And the question is, how do we get it from being a... How do we get to a place from it simply being... Alright, that's an idea I can articulate and agree to. Right? We all like that idea. And we'd be maybe even open to agreeing to it. How do we get it from being... That just being an idea we might agree to, to a governing, experienced truth. Something that is true, and not simply that we have an intellectual grasp of the idea, but actually we experience its truth. We know it more than in a rational way, but in an experiential way. And so it actually starts to govern our lives. We begin to live a new way. All right? We actually go to bed rested, not just telling ourselves we're bad Christians for not being rested. Right? That's what most of us are going to do tonight, myself included. Right? Oh, Brent said we could go to bed rested. Okay, now I'm going to go to bed and just feel bad about the fact that I'm not good at being rested. Right? Now, how do it actually become an experienced truth? Here's the frustrating answer that Jesus gives. Belief. You can't experience the richness of being loved. You can't experience it without the knowledge of the one who loves you. Life is not getting stuff. Life is knowing the one who loves you. This is what I mean. That, I don't know if this illustration will work or not. I'm going to try. Y'all go with me. Tomorrow, Jess and I both get a package in the mail. I don't know why your name keeps coming up. Um, we both get an Apple Watch, right? Uh, I get an Apple Watch. There's no note on it. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it's a mistake. Maybe I won it, kind of thought. Who knows? What do you think in that context? Awesome. I got an Apple Watch. I don't know where it came from. Call people who I think it's in it. No, 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 no. Whatever. Awesome. I got an Apple Watch, right? Jess gets an Apple Watch, which is not her ideal thing, but just... Follow me. She gets with it a note from her father. Words from him. Right? Hey, sweetheart, I love you. I was thinking about you. I'm so proud to call you my daughter. I can't wait for the day I see you again. I just want to do something small for you. See, it's not about getting good things. It's about knowing the one who gives good things because the Apple Watches will be gone. The bread went bad. The manna went bad. Apple Watches break and become obsolete. And when that, after that's over, what's the difference between me and Jess? Because I got a watch that doesn't work now. That's what I got. Jess got life, didn't she? By reading and believing that those were truly her father's words. She got the sure and sweet knowledge that now sits deep in her heart that my dad loves me. He thinks about me all the time. And that sure knowledge over time actually transforms her and makes her a more secure and loving person. And she might not have the million dollar startup, but wouldn't you? Let's all agree to the fact that the reason we're trying to create a million dollar startup is so that someone will notice and love us. She actually won't need that because she'll be sure already. She'll preempt the need for that, won't she? Actually, her father will. 
Belief is hearing the words and the stories of God's love for you in the life of Jesus and saying to yourself, do you know God loves you this way? And you can't experience life until you have the stories of His love. And if you try to, if you, if you try to practice some kind of Christian form of life apart from the stories of His love, what you'll do is you'll create and secretly hate a religion in which you vaguely agree to the idea that there's kind of this favorably disposed towards you deity. And, and then the bulk of your religious life will be about trying not to piss him off. That's what you'll think about most of the time. I hope he's not upset with me. I hope he's not upset with me. And then also your conception of him will begin to be shaped not by what he's told us from Scripture, but actually according to our political and moral preferences. Right? That's what the Jews were doing in verse 15. Trying to make Jesus something he wasn't. And you'll wonder, all right, I'm a Christian, but I'm not experiencing life. And it's because life giving belief begins with the knowledge of what he has said to you and what he has in the real world history, real time done for you. Jesus says hard words in this passage. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. And he actually says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And those are some of the other troubling words of Scripture. And it's like he's saying, We can't come on our own. Is he going to stop us if we want to come? We can't come on our own. The Father has to draw us. And that is exactly what he's saying in his good news. Because remember when Jesus said, you see me and you don't even believe. Isn't that us? We see you, but we don't even believe. And we realize all of a sudden that what Jesus is teaching is not that we just need Him for life. We need Jesus to give us belief because we can't even come up with that. And the, the first effective, and I think ongoing effective prayer of someone who's beginning to understand the grace of God is the prayer of Luke 9.24 that I'll talk about probably twice a quarter the entire time in RUF. I believe, help my unbelief. That is a prayer of faith, isn't it? Not only is Jesus' life His gift, but we even ask Jesus to give us belief. Many of us, non-Christian, many of us Christians in this room, need to say and be honest with ourselves that I have an intellectual understanding of Jesus. I can articulate things that happened to the cross, stuff like that, sin. But Jesus, give me belief. I need more than this intellectual understanding because if I'm honest with myself, what we all know is everyone always gives time and attention to what they believe will give them life. And if I'm honest with myself, it's clear that I don't believe you'll give me life. So will you give me belief? I need to just start there. And maybe that's our prayer. And when you get there, you're actually getting to the heart of the disciples. In verse 68, when Jesus says, are y'all going to go away as well? Because what I'm saying offends people when they're leaving. And Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and we've come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Belief is always going to result in giving your heart and your mind to Jesus, to hearing His words, to acting on them. Because you need to know what He says. And to know what He says, you actually have to act on what He says. Because you realize that He has done what He has done for us, that He is our life, that His death 
is our life. And you realize that you need Him every day, that you could never stop exploring the contours of His love for you and what He's done for you. And so what happens is when, when, when those kind of thoughts begin to kind of get into your mind and get into your heart and get into your soul, you know what happens? Rest starts to happen. The loud voices that are demanding your time and attention and threaten you all the time, they start to get a little bit muted. And rest, according to Scripture, is not the ceasing of activity. It's actually the ceasing of those activities so that you can fill up on Jesus. And I think in some ways the chief mark of someone who actually knows and is beginning to understand the sweetness and the assurance of the love of God, the chief mark is not someone who doesn't work on Sunday. I think at Stanford the chief mark is one who actually sets aside all of our worldly small pursuits, views them that way, and gets before the Word of God in meditation, who gets with the people of God when they gather to worship, who gets before God in prayer. Jesus is the bread of life. Nothing else will do. It is worth giving up everything you have for it, I promise. Let's pray.